Ebony, how are things going on in your parenting world? Well, we're dealing with COVID. My son's recovering um, from COVID that I know he got from school, but, you know. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. um, He's, uh, I was glad, you know, that he was vaccinated because the COVID didn't trigger his asthma, which is what I was, you know, very um, concerned about, but it didn't trigger his asthma. So that was good. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because like his school is like, oh, he can come back. I'm like, yeah, but he's really tired. He needs to rest. And they're like, oh, we just want to let you know that he can come back to school. Like not even recognizing that he's tired and that if he's exhausted and tired school is probably not where he needs to be no no they they don't as i said they they don't get it they really don't get it when we tell them you know what they're just they need some time to recover now this is your older or younger son yeah my older son my youngest son was fine he was here um he was fine he didn't he didn't catch it I mean I think about I'm glad that they had their own rules because if they you know had to be together for sure they both would have had it so and we made him quarantine for 13 days I didn't care that the CDC said you know he could it was 10 days or five days no he he stayed in for 13 days we brought him everything that he needed and that's what it was. You know, I got that letter from the DOE from my school's principal for my younger son because he's been catching a lot of colds. Mm. You think with the mask, right, he, he would not get colds, but he's a five-year-old and he doesn't know how to wear a mask properly sometimes, you know, that it goes, falls under his nose. And so just to do the right thing, just like what Marjorie told us, right? In that, that, that talking to the school nurse episode, mm-hmm. I kept him home so that other kids wouldn't get sick more than I normally would under like pandemic. Usually when under non-pandemic, it's like, okay, you got one, two days to get some rest. Okay, go back to school. But you know, it's to pandemic. So we, I gave him a little more time. And of course they give the, the letter that your son's been out for 10 days or more. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I'm trying to be responsible. He's going to go back in the middle of the week um, because he said he just wanted to ease into it instead of going back like a full week just so that, you know, you're up and down on the train, you're, you're walking in the halls and he's tired. So he's going to, I thought that was a good idea that he'll ease back in. And I'm like, I'll deal with the phone calls and I'll deal with the administration if they have a problem. But I mean, it is a global pandemic. Seriously, people? Yep. But here we are, right? Yep. So this week, um, our episode, we um, taped this way back when we first started um, the podcast. It actually was our first um interview and we interviewed um Alberta Maloney and we talked about race and critical race theory and and how um families should be talking to their uh children about um the things that they hear in the news and I think we had a really uh you know really robust robust conversation with Verda so you know what let's just jump right into that conversation with Verda Maloney okay
So good afternoon and welcome to the New Normal in Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Ebony Tyler, and my co-host is... Flora Huang. And today we have Verda Maloney. And Verda Maloney is a Black woman who cares about the world. She's a storyteller. She's an entrepreneur. She's an educator. She's a she does a lot of work in anti-oppression, and we are here today to talk to Verda about all the things that make people mad in the world, about <laughs> diversity, <laughs> critical race theory, um, anti-racism, all the things that, 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 that people are upset about, and like, how do we talk to our kids about these things? All so the welcome, Verda. Thank you. I love all the things. Let's get into it. Um, we going to get into it. As I don't know who says that, does Tabitha say that? Let's get into it. Who's Tabitha? She's on the socials. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so we, we really wanted to have you here today to talk, um, you know, about um, private school education. And um, so I'll take the first question. Um, you know, why did you, you know, tell us about your connection to private schools and, and the work that you do to help um, institutions become um, anti-racist? So my connection to private or independent schools, because I think it's interesting that that's, a, that's some language that's used in New York City, um, is that my children attend private independent schools. I did not know I had never stepped foot in a private school until it came time to look at schools for my son, who is now uh, a freshman in college. And so I just had never stepped inside one. I knew they existed, obviously, but I had never stepped inside of one in a K-12 setting. And so to say that my mind was blown would be an understatement with what you could create behind the walls of brownstones or in some instances, pretty nondescript buildings on any like New York City street. So quite ingenious and then also quite um, amazing the resources and the things that exist, right? Like we have a pool in our school. So that is how I'm connected to them that my children attended. And, and it, was, um, it was an interesting decision for me, one, having never actually been in one and actually being an educator in public schools, right? So there's this whole kind of thing that's, I started out as a teacher and it's pretty it's pretty telling about what we do and don't tell all people about what's happening in education by the fact that I actually was a teacher who had never stepped foot in a private school, right? So um, that's the first part of the question, which is my connection to it. And then what was the second part of the question? Tell us about your work and helping oh, okay. institutions so, um, yeah. become less anti-racist, to become anti-racist and, 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 and anti-oppressive. Yes. So sometimes I like to use the word like less racist and less <laughs> oppressive because the anti requires serious, serious amount of owning your role in what created the oppression and the racism in the first place. And not a lot of institutions are really ready to do that work. Um, but I'd have to rewind all the way to me being like between the ages of 15 and 18, where I kind of started to, I would say that college is what in some ways radicalized, revolutionized, militarized my thinking. And that's what some people would think. I think I'm so not militant, but other people would describe me as such. And um, it was back then when I started to be introduced to just some brilliant um, 
Black thinkers across the you know, African diaspora, right? So being in rooms with uh, Kwame Nkrumah, sitting down and like talking to Sonia Sanchez, um, literally like meeting Gwendolyn Brooks. Like there are these amazing people um, who um, were uh, like Haki Marabuti, all these scholars of our time that, are, that were writing books and actually like out there in the world doing things was who I kind of grew up and grew in my thinking around what it means to be black. That's how I choose to identify myself. And there's still it's, and that in and of itself is problematic, right? Because the fact that black, the word and term black to describe a human exists is because of racism, um, right? Because if I were able to, to trace my lineage all the way back to whatever tribe it is that they stole my ancestors from, they weren't called black, right? They were called Igbo or they were called whatever their tribe is. You know what I'm saying? So like, but that's, that's the term I choose to use because I think it's more, the most encompassing of who I am and connects me to people across the globe. And so I just started really um, kind of finding myself and understanding my space in this world, um, but also understanding the world and through the lens of Black people and Black scholars, as opposed to what I had been taught and fed through my K through 12 education. And very separate from my also lived experience as a first generation American, third culture kid, whatever term you wanna use, whose father is from Barbados and mom from Guyana, both places that I would visit as a young person, right? Which also situates me very differently in the world because to go to a place like Barbados and just be around a bunch of black people. And don't get me wrong, colonization has hit there too. You know, slavery was there, all that stuff. And still though, to be on an island that is like, oh gosh, I'm just like walking to the beach, all these black people, you know, all that stuff. Um, and similarly, um, Guyana, which also just has a mix of cultures in a very different way. And like the, the way that race and racism shows up there, but just to see myself reflected um, when I would go away in the summer is very different experience than a lot of um, uh, black people in America get to experience. And so um, that led me to all of my work, regardless of what I was doing. So if I was an educator, if I was a leadership coach, if I was a principal of a school, it was all rooted in anti-oppression, how to dismantle a system, how to potentially work outside of a system to recreate, to create something new um, that would center, um, believe, listen to those that systems traditionally marginalize. That's how I end up here on this podcast with you today. That's the short version. <laughs> somewhat short version i know right oh laura's like no that was long <laughs> no it's no but it, very interesting though and I, I really enjoyed listening to that and um so i i, I mean if, private school also is kind of a foreign concept and i'm a former high school i'm a former public school teacher to me as well mm -hmm. and my I've always believed like that was actually one of the things that my son asked me too in eighth grade is that why didn't we apply to any private schools? I said, because, you know, we, we believe in the public school system. I'm, I'm, you know, I was, I was very active within the UFT, within my union. Uh, I actually ran on the ticket against uh, Randy, the, the unity <laughs> ticket and Randy Weingarten. So we were about like, yeah, we were that militant faction. Oh, yeah, we were that militant <laughs> faction. We, we believed and we were very staunch in like public schools, public school. Uh, and um, so so private school was not even something that I even thought about. Mm -hmm. But um, on the other hand, you know, I know plenty of people who shared their own experiences um, 
you know, who received those, you know, the scholarship to Fieldston, the scholarships to Trinity, um, the school that my son went to tag young scholars in East Harlem, um, because they were traditionally the, 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 the gifted and talented with the highest percentage of black and Latinx kids. Um, a lot of the private schools would always go to <laughs> tag young scholars to offer diversity scholarships. And, you know, many of his friends got a chance to go to tr schools like Trinity and Spence and, you know, some half scholarships, some full scholarships. I still never quite understood the concept of the half scholarship. It's like, oh, gee, you're giving me 17,000, but I got to come up with another 17,000. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so, um, so it's, it's something that like, I don't, you know, it, it's it's also foreign to me, but I've heard about um, quite a lot about. I was actually reading a really interesting article about um, kids, so young adults who benefited from the, you know how the Ivy Leagues now offer free tuition to any 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 student who makes whose parents make I think less than sixty thousand or something whatever the income level is and they followed these kids um, young adults who and saw how well they managed in a school like a school like Harvard and Princeton and not surprisingly working class children trying to conform to a, a, a university where the majority of the of where the majority of the students are affluent, not surprisingly, they had a hard time. Um, but then there was a particular group of students who benefited from that scholarship that could, they were referred to as the privileged poor. I'm reading this like, what is privileged poor? And it's like, oh, these were kids who got private scholarships, got scholarships to private schools. And so they already had like that four years to kind of assimilate to this world this ivy league world but that also assumes that they were able to make it through those four years i know plenty of students who weren't able or they were not happy there so so this is actually a lot of this is new to me <laughs> so learning this i have to say like like that totally that breaks my heart and i'm fascinated by terms that are created to describe those that the system marginalizes like so something like privileged poor like literally pisses me i don't know if we can curse yeah. on here so y'all can bleep that out the fuck off. <laughs> yeah because it's so focused on why quote unquote a small segment of students that are traditionally marginalized and kept out are being are quote unquote more successful than their um counterparts that that are that fit whatever demographic they're looking at as opposed to flipping this entire thing and talking about you're offering scholarships to a certain income bracket when legacy and generational wealth is a scholarship in and of itself and so the reason that those people are are at that school like Tradition, you know, traditionally, they've already had their scholarship program, which was legacy, which was that because my father went here, my grandfather went here, my great great grandfather went here, it doesn't matter if you got a C average, you get to come here too. And we're not talking about what we call them, which is, you know, privileged. Um, how do we change that? And that's like such a yeah, that just, it just really gets me mad. It's just like, it's always creating another category of terminology to describe that the whole entire system is so fucked up. And instead of calling that out, we're going to just focus on, oh, well, what made them successful in this, in Harvard or whatever this Ivy League is? I just, it just annoys me. It makes me mad. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and like, I, look, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, like, look at the events of last summer, right? You know, um, and how all these IG pages popped up, black yeah. at, black at, black at, right? I mean, you know, like our own school, you know, it's 250 plus years. Everybody on this call probably wouldn't have been admitted, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right? Even if we exactly. just applied and even had the money, right? So, you know, if, if one of these schools called you and asked you to come and do some work for them, like what are some of the things that you would tell them? Like what's the first thing you would tell them on how they can like fix this um, broken system? Or is the system even broken, right? Because isn't this what it was created for? Yeah, yeah. So I think that the first thing is listen to and believe black, indigenous and people of color when they tell you their stories. So that's the very first thing. And if you don't believe them, because the ways that you show that you don't believe them is by continually asking them to repeat it. Oh, let's hold another meeting to talk about what you wrote on the Instagram <laughs> or like all of these things. It means you don't believe them. So the first thing is you have to actually believe them. That's number one. Um, if you don't, then why are you even doing it? Right. Because you don't believe them. You've got to do all of these, jump through all these hoops to prove that this thing happens. Right. The second thing is be very honest with yourself about the history of how your school came into existence. Um, acknowledge and unpack that because if you cannot reckon with the truth of your history, then there's no way that you can forge a different path forward. Um, so the second is you have to reckon with that, right? So just what you said about the school that our kids go to is 250 years old back then, if you were a woman, you couldn't go. If you were, and if you were, if you were not a white boy, you could not attend this school, right? And I use the term boy, not in the like boy derogatory, but literally a white <laughs> child boy, but not child, I have to say boy. If you were not a white boy, you couldn't even go to the school, right? And so that means that we have to acknowledge and name that and say, okay, and what is that rooted in? That's rooted in colonization and white supremacy. And so even if today in 2021, you are doing things different, you have like there, nobody that even was there back then is there anymore, right? It's 250 years ago, so they're all dead. Those legacies of it will are living in your scholarship policy are living in the ways in which you admit students to the school, are living in your curriculum and the canon texts in your literature department that all students must read. That comes from somewhere. And until you acknowledge that that stuff is happening, then you can't move forward. So that's number two. Um, and then the third thing is, use the right words, anti-racism is radical. That term, the first time I was introduced that, that term was from Angela Davis. So that is not, it is not new, it's from back, back in the day. That's the first time I heard the term anti-racist, right? That said, it is, it requires you to throw away, cut off, destroy things in order to move forward. And you gotta reckon with, are you really willing to do that, okay? So that means, right, I say to schools when I go in, are you willing to lose your job for this? And that's mainly for yeah, white people. That's, are so. you willing to lose <laughs> your job for this? Because that's really what this is going to take. Like you, because if you can say that, then we can like move forward. Because I'm not here for you to lose it, but are you willing to lose it in a bunch of different scenarios, right? Maybe. So that's the first thing. You willing to lose your job for this? 
And so the, the other thing that I, I, people are always like, oh, it's so hard to do all these things. And I'm just like, you're making it harder than it is. Just be a decent human. That's like base space, right? And then if we yeah. are all in schools endeavoring to raise decent humans as children, that's some hard work. Y'all don't balk at that. Yeah. But you balk at making something anti-racist or making something anti-oppressive because we are not a practice nation. We don't have practice with this conversation. People need to build that muscle. You need to start talking about race. You need to be able to say black without feeling like you're saying something derogatory. You need to not get so pressed when someone says that your white privilege is showing right now. Instead, you need to say thank you for that feedback and then interrogate how it is that you're showing up that way. You need to not be so mad and start saying that terms like calling someone a Karen is racist but I'm just like, it's a, it's, it's a name. How, how is that hurting you? And basically, if it ain't about you, then keep it moving. Why are you so pressed? You so mad, you real swell right now, but you have, it has to be rooted in something. So those are the three things that I would say. Believe black indigenous people of color. Number two, reckon with your past. And number three, will you lose your job for this? Are you really about this life? And then we can get into all of the pieces, the so curriculum, da, 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 da. you know what I mean? Because they want to hop to, let's change the curriculum, da, da, da. I need to know these three things because then that stuff is easy. Yeah, and that brings into, I guess, the next question we were going to ask since you brought that up. Um, so yes, there's a lot of talk right now about critical race theory, CRT. Um, and um, I guess how, if you could describe this critical race theory and why everyone is so mad about this what I, the first thing i'm going to say is google it <laughs> yeah to everyone listening right because people are yeah. using this they've glommed onto a term that's really fancy and this and that and they don't even know what it means and you can google it so that's number yeah. one so i'm actually not going to talk about <laughs> what the specifics but i'm going to name that critical race theory is a framework an approach that actually legal scholars, I know Kimberly Crenshaw and the, the, the man's name, I will Google it in a minute, um, kind of came up with to critically look at and talk about race. And so it's a framework. And the only analogous thing that I could say, so it's predicated on that we believe that racism exists. And now we have a framework to critically look at it, right? So that's the thing. And the only thing that I could think of that might be something that people can relate to is just that in your schools, your kids talk about wellness, right? You don't have a problem when they say, we're gonna do, a, we're gonna talk about wellness. We want the kids to be well. I mean, like, look, if your kid goes to school in New York, I always say that this generation of kids, you will know they would have lived in New York or California because they like literally can teach you yoga, okay? So hmm? bottom line is, okay, we, we agree and we acknowledge that wellness is important. All of the wellness, mental, physical, all of that. And Saying that, that schools are teaching CRT is like similar to saying that schools are teaching cognitive behavioral approaches to mental health just because they happen to be teaching wellness at school. It's, it's not true. We're not, no one's teaching critical race theory because it's actually not something that you would teach at that level. You can teach children about race. You can teach them about diversity. You can teach about racism. You can teach about being anti-racist. You can teach them about rape agility. You can teach about all those things. Those are not... It is not synonymous with critical race theory, but basically it is all of this kind of like, you know, when they have the magicians with the ball underneath the cup, just trying to distract people. And they're doing a brilliant job at it, right? Because critical race theory, oh my God, it's like, sounds so fancy. So, oh my gosh, how did Google that shit, number one. And number two, no teacher is even equipped to teacher. 
elementary school teacher can't teach that. And they shouldn't. Right. So it's actually right. I believe it's a distractor. I just I do encourage people to read more about it. But the bottom line is that it is a framework with which to approach understanding institutional racism, systemic racism, same way that cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy is a framework and approach that you decide to use when you determine that someone's mental health needs to be that needs to be addressed. Right. Bottom line, though, the reason that it's easy to glom on, attach to it and say that you don't believe in it is because now we need to get the root. The root thing is that you actually don't believe that racism is a problem and by proxy, you're racist. But they don't want to, but they want to celebrate Juneteenth, but don't want to tell the history of it, right? Listen, <laughs> listen, we had, I was like, are you, are we for real, real right now? Juneteenth this and also that's like a prime example of y'all definitely that's like that's not what we asked for ain't no black person asked you to make that a national holiday that's fantastic great but what about the list and litany of things that people that black people have been asking for the number of laws that are sitting um sitting in filibusters or sitting in like you know sitting in state houses of of government and in the you know in our congress around like voter suppression Right? We literally just still want justice for all the people that have been murdered and killed because of the black bodies, the, you know, the indigenous bodies that they inhabit. That's what we want. And you're gonna now give a day off to a certain group of people economically and socially, right? Because quite honestly, if I work at a restaurant, guaranteed Juneteenth ain't no holiday for me. Right? So then again, so who benefits from that? Nobody is stroking the ego of individuals and you're giving people a day off of work to do what? And I am, look, I am not even saying that it shouldn't be a holiday. That's not my point with this conversation. It's just that you can't have it both ways. Um, and you also need to understand the history of it, right? Because Juneteenth, right? Uh, Google it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny you brought that up because it always reminds me of like, all the Mexican immigrants like working in restaurants and bars during Cinco de Mayo <laughs> from for like all, all, all it's like you have all these people it's celebrating it. first of all they have no idea what the holiday no is clue. about it's like oh it's about the, it's the Mexican independence day no no oh. it's actually wearing, about the wearing the sombreros yes yeah and, and then who's the one actually serving you who's the one actually cleaning you. up after you after, after you, you got drunk and threw up that's um great that's it's, another it's, it's a Mexican example immigrant. That you always complain about because they're undocumented or illegal. <laughs> so, I mean, I personally like Juneteenth as an underground Black holiday. So we just <laughs> do our thing. I mean, I was like, like I was getting text, like text messages and the emails from organizations. I was like, I don't want you telling me happy yes. Juneteenth. I know, and also, is it like a? Right. It's just, it's weird. It's so weird. I literally felt yeah. like, and I said this during this past, like, you know, year to year and a half. Um, it's almost like, I feel like I'm in an episode of Black Mirror. And is that what that show is like, where they like, all, you know, cause I turned on, it was the moment that it happened was I turned on Netflix and there was a whole like Black stories section. It's like, do you know, I have spent the last 15 years struggling 
to piece together because I stopped watching kind of like mainstream television. I think about 10 years ago now, maybe a little bit uh, in that range because I felt like what we consume in that way, just like it really affected me, right? And so I said, you know what? I want to see Black people. I want to see Black Indigenous people in front of the camera or behind, they're telling the story because you can also tell, right? When a story, even if the characters are not of, you know, not Black, you can tell like, oh, I think a black woman wrote this. Or you like, you know what? This really feels like, um, I don't know. I think someone AAPI wrote this because I, the way that they're like allowing, you know, um, Asian Americans to show up on the screen just feels different, right? It's not that whole voyeuristic through a different case. But I woke up and I saw that on my TV and I'm like, this is wild because there's a part of me or I opened the, um, the app to, to like order some Grubhub or Seamless and it was like black owned restaurants. I was like, what? And so it just felt really weird and surreal because it's not, um, it's awesome. It needs to be done. And at the same time, there's a deeper level of work here that also needs to be done that's being ignored. And to me, that goes back to when we think of schools, um, to just say you have a policy that's an anti-racist policy or just to say that we are all about this, you're not doing the underlying, underlying work because if a student wrote on a, on a page that a teacher and they named said teacher did said racist thing and that teacher still teaching at the school, and you, then that, that my question number three, you're not willing to lose your job or to let other people lose their job for this then, mm. right? So it all like, that's, that's how it kind of like connects back to that for me. So oh. that's, did I answer the question? I don't even remember the question. That's okay. You did, you did. Right. You, told well, us yes, to, you, told, you did. You told us to Google it <laughs> and you told us why we bad at it, right? <laughs> but you know, like every, every night, right? Like there's something on TV that uh, there's something that's happening in the world. Um, and people are like, how are you talking to your kids about this? Like, and I'm like, well, first of all, they've been black all their life. Yes. <laughs> We've been having these conversations. <laughs> you know, so some things I feel like, especially like last year with George Floyd, like people are like, how are you talking to your kids? And I'm like, not really. I'm letting them right. lead the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because sometimes I feel like all the things that happen in the world is just too much. Mm -hmm. And then like, sometimes, you know, my kids feel damn being black is hard but no nah, being black is lit um so <laughs> how do you talk to your how would you recommend to other parents because i never have anything for them my, my response is always like we've been black i've been black my whole life i, yeah. I don't even know yeah. how to even mm -hmm. you know like to adjust to have this conversation i mean and flora i want to hear your thoughts on this too um we and we haven't really talked about this as you know like the events of this summer the events of the past year you know, of, you know, the violence that has been happening to the a AAPI community. Like, how do you talk to your children about this stuff? Like, what are some tips? Like, what, what, we, what, what do we do? Yeah, I, I mean, so this is, this is kind of interesting that you brought this up and, you know, because, yeah, last year, I, and, you know, so for those of you who don't know my, so my son is biracial, his father is black, and, um, and we, you know, I remember when um, Michael Brown was killed, the, uh, the, the first thing that came, or even Trayvon Martin was killed. The first thing that came into my mind was my kid could get shot by George, a George Zimmerman if it's just any moment. And, and people did say. Son? How old was your son at that time? Uh, he was eight, nine years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... and um, and people have told me, now you know what it's like to be a black mother. I said, yeah, I know. 
you know, I, you know, I've always and it's it's funny even when my son answers when they fill ask him to fill out the racial category, he actually answers black, and I have no problem with that. I because the world is going to view him as black. They're not going to view him as biracial. They're not going to view him as Blasian. He's just going to be viewed as black, even though, as he always jokes around, I'm that random Latino kid. Um, that's what he always says, <laughs> that random looking Latino kid. And um, and yeah, so so it was, you know, we went to a lot of the BLM protests last year and had conversations and we participated in and so where he so in fact where when he went to tag young scholars and you know towards the end of like seventh eighth grade tag got less and less black and latinx and got more and more asian um mm -hmm. and it's now 50 percent asian although the majority of the asians are bengali which a lot of people don't even view bengalis as Listen, asian even though they and then when we write like this <laughs> term like Asia, just asian american pacific islander like just it's bananas all of the yeah. people that we are trying to lump under a category it's ridiculous right yeah and they, they that's the thing is that not and not all asians are treated the same let's just mm -hmm. be let's be frank about this let's not not all asians are treated the same i mean i remember why looking at those pro peter liang protests after a kai girly got shot and they're like uh, uh, the asian community i said look i didn't see any bengalis there <laughs> at that rally you can't claim that this was an asian protest because i didn't see any bengalis there i didn't see any filipinos there it was predominantly chinese people let's call and maybe some smatterings of koreans here and there let's be honest um so um but yeah it, and it's now that of course yeah we're seeing a lot of a, the anti-asian and in fact one of the things you see is being spewed from a lot of the conservatives is that oh well most of the perpetrators are black Yes. I'm like, first of all, anti-blackness. You don't, yeah. First of all, you don't know that. Mm -hmm. You're just seeing whatever the media shows you. And look, it's it's expected that if you have communities where black and Asian people are sharing, you know, the same fight, basically fighting over the same resources, mm -hmm. they, there there's well, there's going to be tension. <laughs> there's mm -hmm. going to be a certain amount. And look, we're not even looking at the end, which I've been saying is that there's a growing mental health crisis. Like when you look at who were the who the people attacking, a lot of them were already struggling to begin with. And they're but they're not looking again through that critical lens. But going back to I think when Tag Young Scholars got more and more Asian and less in he there, there was a whole discussion about the reforming the specialized high schools because they were all taking the specialized high school exams. And um, he was kind of straddling that. And he, he explained, no, go, having gone to Tag Young Scholars, which is one of the schools where they're able, they were able to get 50% of the kids into the specialized high schools, you know, they, they saw like the mayor's approach to reform the specialized high schools as kind of discriminatory against Asians. They said, no, he's not being, I mean, I actually did not agree with the mayor's proposal personally, but I did believe there needed to be serious reform. Having taught at Stuyvesant when it was 8% Black and Latinx, it now 3% Black and Latinx, there needed to be major reform. And there needed to be some serious crackdown on things like these prep programs that are 
that that are skewing the data and, and that are making it more difficult for certain people to attend. And he was able to debate with a lot of Asians about that, explaining why there needs to be serious reform going on and what is that that there is there is something called equity there is something called being on a level playing field that acknowledging that just by going to tag young scholars you have advantages that other kids don't have and if you go to a nest or a anderson you have even more advantages um so and so, yeah, that was very important for him to understand. But we did, you know, early on, nine years old, we did have conversations about, you know, what to say, what to do to a police when if a police officer approaches you. I had him read a couple of essays. There was a very well written essay submitted by this young man who's, you know, he's now he was 16 then who talked about what happened to him when he got stopped by a, a police officer while waiting for a train at, on the BART station in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And um, these were very important for him to read just, just for his life. When he, the CCRB had one of their Know Your Rights workshops, I made sure that he attended that. And he has the little CCRB Know Your Rights card with him. I said, no, you carry this wherever you go. Okay, you carry this wherever you go. And but there's also a way to approach that officer because I don't want to see you dead. I want to see you alive. And whatever they do to you, it's yes, officer, no officer. What is your question, officer? And if they do anything that that crosses the line, you come back and tell me and we'll take care of it. But I do not want to see you dead. So, so that is very important that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I also have a young, my younger child is fully Asian. And so there is a contrast between how I raised the younger, I mean, he's five. Um, Mm -hmm. So there is a certainly, you know, that I worry about the things I worry for my older son are a little different from things I worry for my younger son. So it's, um, so I don't have tips because I don't think like I just think there's no quick like quick fix for that and I think it all is about where you enter as the adult in this so there's a kind of a spectrum of what it is that you're going to do right so similar to what you said Ebony like I've been black I'm gonna be black I'm gonna die black my kids is black they black like it's no question ain't never going to be a question all of that and this summer I um this past year, I was a part of a, like a virtual session with um, Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote The Body is Not an Apology, and Adrian Marie Brown. And I like keep the, I post up here all these notes that I took from it. And one of the things that Sonia Renee Taylor said is that we want to create free children and keep them alive. And that, so there's a balance between the freedom to just exist in the world, because that lack of freedom to exist in the world is part of what um, I think it, it's one of the ways that we trap Black children right? Like that you can't be, you just can't be like, you need to be able to exist. Right. And I'm going to speak about black children right now, very specifically as a black mom. Um, and maybe some of these things, other people will take as something that they could do. So that said, my goal has always been, how do I create some of the most liberated? And I mean, on all levels of the word humans in the world, that they can go out and that they can be their fullest selves and know that they have the ability to do that. And then how do I keep them alive? 
And there's only so much that's in my control. So when you were talking, Flora, like what I was like clutching my chest about is that literally we can say all of that and a kid can do all of the right things, but depending on who that officer is on that day and what they have gone through and how they see a black body, they shoot first, ask question later. It doesn't even matter if the person was like saying, sir, they're going to say it was a threat, right? So there's just like yeah. all of these moments where actually it just depends. And so I had to take myself out of the, I cannot control this other human being, right? right? Yeah. And so that said, I think there's also then, then it comes down to who you are in the world. So we right. just talk about stuff. They listen to me do trainings. They have been to sessions with me where I'm in the room talking to people about this. So part of the backdrop of their life is a mom who does this work, right? So that's kind of just something. So I'm just existing. And then we're having, and then I'm doing similar to what Ebony said, leading that conversation is led from where they are. I do think that an approach that has worked when they were little is watching programs together so as much as I was like not feeling blackish when I heard that it was coming because I was like what is this blackish I was just like was feeling a kind of way I will say that programs like blackish dive into things in bite-sized ways that you can then have a longer conversation with your children same thing with Disney movies like you could do this with any just about anything is going to have a racialized aspect and component that you can then have a conversation so do it in ways that are natural and that that's for someone who like needs things but that's just your life that's living your life when these things happen in the news that are like these huge flashpoints like George Floyd I might not if they bring it to me I might but I don't need to give them dead bodies all the time I don't need to do that that's not okay. Yeah. It's not okay yeah. for my black children to see that as these moments to have that conversation. That said, if I am somebody in the world who, look, I, black people are not monolithic. There are black people that are adults that don't want to talk about race, that yeah. don't that that ascribe to yep. certain type of identity politics and things like that. And so their approach is going to be different, right? What yeah. I will say is that where we need to get in the world is that we have humans that don't that can no longer say, I never even considered that because I just don't raise a kid like that. That's what has to change, right? Like that white families can no longer be in a bubble of, oh, you know, there's this TikTok of this girl, a white girl who gets pulled over by the cops. And she said, oh, I just got pulled over the, by the cops. So I decided to make a TikTok. <laughs> you that's, that's, wow. Right. When a black person can't even they got hands on the steering wheel, can't even touch the phone. Got to get that shit situated before the person even comes up behind you. She's outside making a TikTok. We need to get to a place where that young person understands and realizes that that just is not because another person can't do that, then you shouldn't. But has to understand that another and those are conversations that white families need to be having with their kids, which is not just about, oh, Let's talk about what's happening for the black bodies. Actually talk about why is this something that's happening for you? Why are you making a TikTok? Why is this, why are you all liking this video? Instead of having a conversation about what can we do differently? How can we be better? So I, I think that the tip there is around your life needs to be filled with opportunities to have these types of conversations. And if your life is not filled with opportunities to have these conversations, you need to revisit your life. Who are the people in your life? Who are the people that are at your dinner table? Who's your doctor? Who's your, you know, who, are, who who's doing your financial investing? Like, are you diversifying that pool? So that if I am talking about investing, that I'm, maybe I have a black woman that is my financial advisor and we can then talk about the fact that not a lot of black women are in this space something like that you need to do that right and then the second is i um if i have to live and my children have to live in a racialized body all the time 
then you should not feel like it is too much of a burden to bear for your child to have to talk about it or for you to have to talk about it. So like get all the way over yourself right now. And if you can't, then, then we get to make decisions to not have you in our lives and you can't be mad. Or you could be big mad. Just be big mad over there in your house. <laughs> just, yep. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> I think that's like the perfect way to end the conversation. Be big mad, but be over there if we choose not to interact with you. Like, have the tantrum over there. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. That's what we tell our exactly. kids. Have over the tantrum there. over there. And when you're done, I, let us know. <laughs> I do want to say one last thing because I do think that this is, the, the thing, the, the fact that this podcast is about like parenting and about schools, we have I, I, white women, and I'm going to say, I'm going to generalize an 80-20 rule, but white women are 80% of the time, predominantly the ones raising the children in households of white people, okay? With support, da 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 or without. And white women have a unique opportunity to raise the first generation of anti-racist children if they would get over themselves and start to do this work. They have an opportunity to do that because don't sleep on this Gen Z, right? Um, it's almost like, cause they're on some new shit and they are ready yeah. to talk about this. They are ready to like get into it. And we have such an opportunity and, um, that, that's what I want to end on. This is an opportunity. We can literally raise the first, I believe we can raise the first generation of anti-racist children. If people will stop getting over themselves, we'll, we'll just get over themselves. So that's what I think. Verda, thank you so much for being on our new normal and parenting podcast. How can people support you? How can people I'll follow your work. Is there anything that you want to plug? Wow. Um, well, um, yeah. yeah, great. I have two companies. One is called thegamehers.com. T-H-E-G-A-M-H-E-R-S. So you can check me out there. I have 45lemons.com. You can check me out there. And if you just Google Verda, not too many people are going to show up. Verda Maloney, find me at Verda, at Verda Maloney on all of the socials. And um, the thing that I would plug is just that if you do anything after this podcast, it is invest money in something that centers Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So whether, you know, just spend money, put your money where your mouth is, or put your money where your ears are in this instance. Thank you.